From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. It would be an understatement to say that the IRS has been on a funding roller coaster these past several years. The agency went from severe chronic underfunding to getting an $80 billion windfall in last year's Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Then, this spring, as a part of the agreement to raise the debt ceiling, the White House and lawmakers agreed to shave off more than a quarter of that funding. Now Republicans in the House are looking to claw back even more of it in their annual appropriations bills. Today, with Congress set to come back from its August recess next week, we're doing a two-part episode looking at the goings-on on Capitol Hill, and today we'll be talking about what may become of that IRS windfall with Janet Holtzblatt, a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center and a former unit chief at the Congressional Budget Office. Janet spoke to Bloomberg tax reporter Chris Chaffee about what all of this maneuvering could mean for the IRS's grand plans to modernize itself, but first she talked about why the $80 billion was needed in the first place. Going back to 2010, which was sort of a peak year for the IRS, funding since then was cut by over 20% once you adjust for inflation. And the biggest cuts were in the enforcement area, and that was reinforced by a hiring freeze that covered about seven years during that period. And so what you also saw in that period since 2010 was a reduction in staff partly due to also the aging of the workforce, but people who then couldn't be replaced because of the hiring freeze, you had a reduction in staff from about 95,000 to 81,000 by 2021. The biggest hit, and this goes with the biggest hit being in the enforcement budget, was a big loss uh, the revenue agents and the revenue officers, the people who did the most complicated types of audits, the most complicated kinds of collections. And then compounding all of that was the increasing obsolescence of the IRS computers. Right now, about a third of them are still operating on legacy language, which means that they're using programming language that's over 25 years old. And then you had the perfect storm or the imperfect storm, where you had a combination of these resource declines with the pandemic. And once you have the pandemic, the IRS is made of human beings too. So service centers close, paper returns was being stored in um, trailers in the parking lots of these service centers. Um, And so you then get this double whammy of a decline in the resources and people not being able to get into these service centers. And you now have had a couple of years, it's now getting resolved, but a couple of years where Paper returns were not being processed in a timely manner, which meant refunds were not being delivered in a timely fashion. People were calling the IRS with more and more phone calls, not only because of where is my refund, but also because Congress did the right thing. It provided more assistance to people during the pandemic, but that was complicated for people to understand. And so they were calling in, the phones weren't getting answered. And, you know, whatever dissatisfaction people have naturally, by the IRS's history, just got more and more compounded over the last few years. So last August, Democrats used this congressional reconciliation process to go around Republicans and pass a bill that they called the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA as we hear it in congressional parlance. What has the agency said about how it plans to use this money? And how have we already seen the IRS use it 
to boost some of these pieces that have fallen away? So the administration had asked for $80 billion to be spread over 10 years. It's sometimes referred to as a mandatory because uh, it was not going to be subject to the annual appropriation, although the annual appropriation was still supposed to be taking place. You know, when they requested this money, they provided some very broad notions of how the money would be used. And then Congress, and I suspect to the surprise of the administration <laughs> or to any of us who've been studying this, the Congress back in August gave the IRS the full $80 billion. They identified in the bill how much of it would go to enforcement. Enforcement got over half the money. How much for operation support, how much for modernization, and how much for taxpayer services. And so the very first thing that the IRS did as spurred by Secretary Yellen was to go out there and hire 5,000 customer service reps. And that meant that this year there was a record number of phone calls that were being answered. So this bill, this reconciliation bill, was actually passed during the August recess. Congress was out on vacation doing what they do in August, campaigning right before an election. And leadership called them back to Washington. They said, we need to vote on this bill. And it was a special vote just for this reconciliation bill, this IRA. Since then, we've seen Republicans in the House take over the majority after winning the majority of the seats in last year's elections. And they've tried in a lot of ways to get this special funding clawed back. What have lawmakers in the House sought to do to claw that money back? And has it worked? Well, it depends on your definition of has it worked. Um, they've done two things. One was a concern that was there from the very beginning. The notion, again, was that this $80 billion was on top of the annual appropriations, which has been the last year or so been about $12.2 billion. The problem was that neither the administration when it made its proposal nor Congress when it did a reconciliation bill provided any guardrails. So on the one hand, you're increasing the IRS funding over 10 years by 80 billion. On the other hand, you're doing nothing to prevent the Appropriations Committee from eating into the appropriations and saying, hey guys, you got 80 billion. We don't give you what you want in appropriations. You can still go into this 80 billion and use some of that. And so not surprising if you've been watching this, the first thing they did was in their annual appropriations, the House proposed cutting the IRS's appropriation by over a billion dollars. Then on top of it, the way that the Fiscal Responsibility Act was written, clawed back $21.4 billion from the $80 billion that had been provided in Congress in the Inflation Reduction Act. The appropriation bill that covers the IRS does rescind that $10 billion that had been cut back in the spring Fiscal Responsibility Act. But less transparently, and this is something that analysis by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has uncovered, is that they've also, the House Appropriations Committee has also shaved away money through other appropriations bills, shaved away money from the IRS and other appropriations bill. So that in combination, 
The Appropriations Committee on the House side is calling for a $67 billion rescission out of the $80 billion that had provided in the 2022 Tax Act. Right. And as you described, the Republicans basically tucked in these clawbacks, if you will, in not only the funding bill that funds the IRS every year, 12 funding bills that fund all of the agencies in the government are passed to properly fund the government. And we're not quite there yet as to whether the appropriators or these people in Congress, members of Congress, who decide how much funding agencies in the government get each year, whether they will end up taking out this money from other parts of the budget to kind of reuse it, which looks like it's saving money, but really what it's doing is just clawing back money that has already been spent by Congress. But with respect to what Congress does, this is what's in the House bill. I mean, in terms of the Senate committee, we've seen holding constant the annual appropriations, but also, at least as of now, just the clawback of $10 billion that had been committed to in the springtime. So if chronic underfunding of the IRS is bringing us to where we are today, it sounds like those appropriators are not providing enough money for the agency annually. So even in the Senate, the best the IRS can do this year is to get the same amount of money that it got last year, which is lower than the $14.1 billion the Biden administration asked for for the IRS. So what does that mean for this special modernization enforcement money? And do you see it having its same intended impact if appropriators continue to provide below what the White House believes the IRS needs to function properly? That is the question. I would have said the $80 billion question, but maybe it's down to the $13 billion question. Um, I think, at least for now, it seems to me that to some extent, the IRS is staying the course. They just recently announced this initiative, which they call the paperless IRS. And so part of this initiative on this paperless IRS is that the IRS, when it gets a paper return, will scan it electronically. And that will mean that it's almost as if the paper return will be like an electronic return. So I think that in the short term, the IRS can continue to do the kinds of customer service things that will make the agency on that way more efficient and make it easier for taxpayers to file the return. The problem is the emphasis of the $80 billion was to improve enforcement, improve compliance amongst the very wealthy and amongst the big businesses, to move the onus of or the appearance of the IRS focusing audits on lower income, middle income taxpayers and bring it up to the higher income and people with over 400,000 income and the biggest businesses. That was a longer term strategy because to be able to do that, you had a higher specialists who could handle the complexity of the tax code. The IRS's plan was to really start hiring in this year, and then you have to train people and so forth. And just even recruiting, you know, these individuals was going to take some time. 
And then, as I say, onboarding them and training them could be a several year process to get people who might be specialists, but into the IRS mindset into how you do these audits. So if the Biden administration and House Republicans agreed to about $20 billion in clawbacks from this $80 billion of special one-time funding, but then the House GOP majority decided to go further than that $20 billion over two years by clawing back all but $13 billion of this special money in just one year and proposing a big cut to the annual IRS funding, regardless of what happens this year in terms of how much the agency ultimately gets when lawmakers get together and decide how or if to fund the government, will this fight over funding for the IRS be subsiding anytime soon? Or do you expect us to be back here doing a podcast in a few years where we're talking about how the IRS is still not getting the funding it says it needs to run its regular operations annually? Okay, let's assume for the moment that the House doesn't get the major clawbacks that they have put into the appropriations bill. And if we had just been where we were in the spring with the shaving of $20 billion of the initial $80 billion request, the commissioner at that point essentially said, we're staying the course. We're continuing with the milestones, the goals, the initiatives that they had laid out in the April plan. And that plan only really took you out to 2028. So there was always going to be a certain amount of planning, testing, and so forth, and then being able to interpret and then figure out, you know, midway, more than midway through the, the initiative as to how to go forward. But I mean, the reality is it, when even the Senate appropriators are essentially in real dollars cutting into the appropriations. And uncertainty grows as to what happens with the remaining amount of money in the big 10-year plan. You are not going to be doing what they intended to do. And you're also perhaps going to be causing some uncertainty within the agency that could slow planning. I mean, if you think I mean, think of our own lives. If you think money is uncertain, maybe you get more hesitant about what kinds of long-term plans you're going to make with it. That was Janet Holtzblatt with the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center speaking with Chris Chaffee. And that's it for today's podcast. Tune in next week for more discussion of what to expect from Congress for the rest of this year. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Meg Shreve and Naomi Jagoda are our editors. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive. They can be exploitative. 
We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.